Thank you for joining us for Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton, and today we're joined by Walker Zapp. Walker will be reading to us from Nakadai. Walker, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Oh, anytime. I'm looking forward to hearing you read, and I love being read too. Can you first, can you tell us a little bit about, just a sentence or two, about the book? Well, Nakadai is a uh, satire of British universities, and it's essentially a, uh, a retelling of the Faust legend. And it's also about multiculturalism, uh, the point of view of the student, and I suppose the search for God. I think that's the best way to sum it up. So, Wow, that's a lot in one book. Yeah. <laughs> Very short. It's a short book. <laughs> Could we have our first reading, please? Absolutely. I'm going to go right from the beginning of the book. I'm going to read for a little bit. Chapter 1. Narrator. Genius. I start my mornings by listening to Mozart's Hunt Quartet, a string quartet whose opening movement features a motif mimicking a hunting horn. I shower slowly, dress soberly, and eat a fastidious breakfast of cherry scones and black coffee. I then sit at the picnic desk I purchase from home base and start work. My work today is somewhat different, however. Today I intend to document the history of Hiroshi Nakadai, professor of neolinguistics at the University of Twickley, who only recently ceased to be my tutor. I submitted my PhD in theoretical and applied linguistics yesterday morning, then sat down and cried to the Hun Quartet as though I'd taken center stage in some dreadful campus comedy. Be warned, reader, I do not intend to offer such frivolity this morning. Taking up any lengthy residence in an academic department is like all that freeform jazz pioneered by Ornette Coleman and John Coltrane. Complex improvisations on a single theme with a predilection towards the atonal, which increases with each passing day. I'm not entirely sure why I decided to do a PhD, so let it be known that I, Nicola Hillam Joyner, have absolutely zero intention of embarking on any kind of academic career. I don't want to be part of any research institution. I don't want their concrete and plastic touching my skin. I don't want their sense of coffee and links penetrating my nostrils. I don't want Stravinsky's Oedipus Rex battering my eardrums. My neighbor in the doctoral student office, who has every intention of becoming a tenured professor, has a habit of playing Stravinsky at full volume. Nor do I want their administrative staff talking to me. I have been at the University of Twickley for four years now, and I have reached the unpopular conclusion that when you give men power, they get stupid and arrogant, and when you give women power, they become scheming and evil. Both conclusions are about as progressive as the social and cultural protests against urbanization you find in punk rock and neoclassicism to boot. But why, as Sid Vicious demonstrated so disastrously, do we want things to progress? For example, is nihilism progress? If their predilection towards swastikas is anything to go on, I don't think progress is necessarily enjoyable. Human lives are short things. They can only be endured with an arcane mixture of pathetic values, ingratitude, and anger. It's arcane because it works in life and the operas of Pizzetti. With that in mind, I would like to live my life with as little trouble as possible. I'm sure many would say this indicated a non-life, the kind of pathetic existence melodically suggested by John Davies' organ compositions. I think the so-called glorious and effectual lives offered by solicitors' offices, investment firms, and academic departments amount to Davies-esque existences. But my opinions are not going to save the world. This got drummed into me when I started my doctorate. My grievances are my position in the universe. I will go to work on a Scottish farm when I finish writing Nakadai's story, preferably over the next five hours while I still have energy. I am sitting in my one-bedroom apartment on Bashful Lane, 
down the road is where Nakodai used to live. I own dangerous electric heaters because the real heating doesn't work. The shower takes ages to heat up and my water bill is high, but the gas oven is warm and the picnic desk I bought from home base is my best friend. A friend should be a durable thing, Nakodai once told me. That's why there are so few around. It's July and bright outside. The wind blows through the window and cools my armpits, dries the sweat on my forehead. Well, so where did the idea for Nakadai come from? Well, I've got a lot to say about that. <laughs> one thing which always interests me is, is uh, sorry, one thing which always interests people is why I write about someone so different from myself. I'm not gay. I'm not Japanese. I'm not a linguist. I tried to be a linguist. I wasn't very good at it. Uh, but the long and short of it is that I'm curious about different cultures, different ways of life, different people. And I would sooner start practicing law than start writing about myself, as is the want of many authors today, you know, and some of whom are very close to me. I do think we should encourage uh, young authors in particular to uh, write about things about which they know nothing because, and perhaps it's simply wishful thinking on my part, they might move closer to that Pauline principle of loving everyone. Uh, because in order to love someone, you have to be interested in them. You know, even if you find them disagreeable or you don't like what they say at all, it's still possible to love them. So, yeah, I mean, what Nakadai is explicitly is, is a piece of Wittgenstein fiction. And Wittgenstein fiction was a term coined by Marjorie Perloff in a wonderful book she wrote called Wittgenstein's Ladder in 1996. And it's also something I expand on uh, in a book that I've written called Wittgenstein Fiction, which is based on my PhD thesis, which is going to be published by If Books at some point. Uh, but the most important thing to remember about Wittgenstein fiction, in my view, is that it's impossible to split Wittgenstein's life from his work. All right. And if you indulge me, I'd like to give you an example. <laughs> sure. uh, cool. So Wittgenstein is studying under Bertrand Russell at Cambridge University, except he doesn't like Cambridge. He thinks it's stuffy and self-interested, which coming from Wittgenstein is a bit rich, but let's ignore that. Now, the reaction of any normal human being to this situation would be either to drop out and go back to Austria, where he came from, or to just get a stiff upper lip and crack on with your degree. Wittgenstein doesn't do either of those things. He goes to Norway. And it's not like he goes to Bergen, which is where, you know, cultural life would be, I suppose, let alone academic life. No, he goes to Skolden, which is a tiny village on the fjord, except he doesn't stay in the village. He goes across the fjord and he builds a house on the side of a mountain and he lives there. And he writes to G.E. Moore, who's another famous philosopher who worked alongside Bertrand Russell at Cambridge, and he, he tells Moore how lonely he is. He says he wants a companion. He wants someone to work with on the material, which is eventually going to become his first book, which is called The Tractatus Logica Philosophicus. And so G.E. Moore says, okay, and he goes over, and immediately Wittgenstein starts berating him, and he's mean to him the whole trip. This is not the behavior of a normal human being, all right? But out of this behavior, Wittgenstein dredges all of his work. And for me, the truest part of Wittgenstein's philosophy was in how he lived his life. And the truest part of Wittgenstein's life was in how he wrote his philosophy. Now, how does this affect the way we approach writing Wittgenstein fiction? Well, it means that I went into Nakadai with the idea that it was going to be a, about a life full of work. Now, why does Nakadai work? He works because he's compelled to by an intergalactic being. 
Yes. Uh, hence the, it's, it's a Faust retelling. So in this case, it's not the devil, but it's an intergalactic being. And at the heart of that relationship is ultimately a kind of slavery or bondage. And the only way you can break out of this is by outwitting the devil. Now, the only way you can outwit the devil is by being divine. Now, for all intents and purposes, um, Nakedai is divine, but he's also flawed. Yeah. He's flawed in the same way that St. Saint Paul was flawed. You know, St. Paul famously says in, in, I think it's in Corinthians, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Yeah. Well, Nakedai has a very similar thorn in his flesh and it drives him on in the face of, in one case, a full blown conflict in which he's a soldier. So all this stuff is going on in the novel and, I'm, and, and, and that's, that's essentially what it's about. Oh, wow. Could we have another reading, please? Absolutely. So. Sorry, first, though, I have to say that I think your your kind of rationale for why we should write from backgrounds that we don't know or don't have and doing that as a way to to learn to love people who have maybe different backgrounds or experiences. Mm-hmm. I think that's such a powerful thing. I think so many times people yeah. the people either say and are kind of dismissive a little bit about it. And they when they talk about, um, oh, I'm going to write about this culture because I should be able to write about any culture, mm-hmm. which Sometimes it's coming from a point of I, I'm entitled to write about any so, story yeah, yeah. that I want to write about, and then I can portray other people the way that I'm limited to from my experience. But approaching it as an act of love and an act of like understanding people and bringing people kind of closer, I just think that's such a powerful way to, to view it. Yeah. And, and just before I read up, just mention that James Baldwin quote, which I love. I'll paraphrase it a bit here. You know, you, you grow up thinking that you're the most put upon person on the planet and then you read. I love that quote. Yeah, yeah wonderful. So this bit is from the first third of the book, but we're sort of close to the middle. And it's from one of Nakadai's memoirish fictionalization. So he likes to write a diary of sorts. And this is from his diary. And uh, in this diary, he's talking about uh, trying to get his friend Goro Saito his fellow Japanese, to come and work with him at the University of Twipley. Goro was a tall-sounding man. His words were elongated somehow, sounding like rubber bands snapping to and fro. I was a benefice that day, a juridical entity who had received a blessing from an ecclesiastical authority, the University of Twipley. There really is too much to talk about, I said into the phone. What do you know about the Harris Treaty? Goro coughed. Educate me. The Harris Treaty of 1858 allowed foreigners to live in Japan. For the first time, people flocked to our country. Even clergymen were allowed to come, though they couldn't convert anyone. That was against the law. I say this because I feel to be in a similar position with you, Goro. I'm trying to see if you've changed, but I don't want to convert you in any way. I wonder, who told you about the sky? The sky? That's the gay club you told me about, isn't it? I deny everything. I scribbled the name down. I mean the word thing in general. I probably learned about the sky at nursery. When you were a tiny squid, I squeezed the bridge of my nose. Sorry, I, I didn't mean, what did you call me? Tiny squid? Yes, never mind, slip of the tongue. But the only reason, I continued, you and I can talk about this thing called the sky is because someone mentioned it and then pointed up, a connection between uttered word and things seen. When the great word had come, all this would end. The multiple labels, names, and designations would become one perfect word. The vault of heaven and the blue yonder would no longer be needed, nor would the welkin, the ether, or the azure we would all succumb to singularity. I suppose so, said Goro. This whole thing where we name something and point towards it instigates a deeper question. That is the depth of philosophy. Religious indifference becomes water in a skillet. The problem is whether we can question something that isn't tangible, like God. 
which is a name. There are infinite names, forms, and shapes. That is the essence of God. Hold up. I could hear Agora thinking. It was raining where he was. When you question the existence of something, you don't take issue with its matter, but with its label. Thus, an object in itself is never investigated. I crossed my legs. Maybe all we have is theological truth. Oh, no. I could hear Goro lean over the phone. You're not religious, are you? You knew I was a Catholic, didn't you? I had aspirations at university, but when I got back from Japan, I was made a Catholic proper. I was a monk for a time. You're not selling Twickly to me, are you? The age of tolerance was over. His religious principles would win out. I smiled. I can't guarantee a job for you. We struggle to give our lives meaning. Bringing you in will frustrate that even more. I sighed. I have no idea how you cope with those limeys at that boarding school of yours. You know what a scholarship looks like. You didn't need it anyway. No one needs a scholarship. People earn them. I earned mine and you earned nothing. That's stupid. Gora was getting harder to take seriously. You want to know what's, stu what's not stupid? I asked. Share joy without sex. I doubt Nietzsche admitted that second part, but it doesn't make what he said any less stupid. What is really stupid is total good. Why should what is morally good rest upon its relation to human existence and its purpose in life? That seems a bit vague to me. It would not be stupid, however, if you were to join our department. I like power too much. Head of English, Cheltenham College. I'm powerful here. You've made mistakes. The whole of Japan was in a state of civil war when Francis Xavier arrived there. He had as much influence on what people thought as the emperor did. Meanwhile, Goro was about to do the same. The myriad spheres of criticism that compose the humanities are the battlegrounds for civil war, necessitated by the type of thinking that goes on. Goro was poised to pick up a weapon and join the fight. If we're going to talk about marriage, Nakadai, I would prefer to speak in Japanese. What do you mean you can only speak a little? It's not like you'd run away from words. I closed my mind. I tried to shield my thoughts from Professor Mutton and the Great Word. I would like to run away from this place, I admit it. I've been here too long. Then leave. Get a new posting somewhere. It's not that simple, I'm afraid. There are few loose ends here. I would have to tie them up. There was a long pause. I would like you to be my partner in sin, I explained. Do you know how that works? The way Goro spoke was extra long. Nope. There are many ways you can share sin. You can cause me or incite me to do wrong. You can... Approve a wrong of mine by counsel, command, consent, provocation, praise or flattery, concealment. You can be an active partner in the wrongdoing. You can be silent. You can defend the wrong I've done. I could hear Goro lick his lips. Oh, it's not a student, is it? What? Never mind. He was thinking. What about love? Some slightly more intelligent monks had asked Abbot Cooney the same thing at Burton Abbey. Love is there too, I answered. Do you think love is part of some larger equation? Do you think it's fixed and larger than speech, language, communication? He sighed. I suppose I'll have to ask Betty and Danielle about that now that they're having drinks after work together, where they talk about my failings as husband and lover. I think if love really existed, then God wouldn't have left us to rot on this stinking planet. And who do you share joy with? No one at current, I replied. I once gave someone a lot of compassion. It didn't get me anywhere. But I would love for you to start here as soon as possible. I'll pull a few strings. Goro said, I look forward to seeing what strings pull you. I love the idea of the wife and the girlfriend having uh, drinks together. <laughs> yeah. And he thinks you're talking about him. <laughs> yeah. of, course, of course not. How silly, Gora. <laughs> exactly. They have other things in common to talk about. So what sort of research did you do for the book? And what's something interesting you found out that didn't make its way into Nakadai? 
Well, this was a really big research project, and there were two two segments, so to speak. So the first segment was reading other novels uh, of Wittgenstein fiction, which was a bit difficult because no one had really defined it. And this was part of my research for my PhD, um, defining what Wittgenstein fiction is. And I zeroed in on three novels. First one was Correction by Thomas Bernhard. The second one was The World as I Found It by Bruce Duffy. And the third one was by a lovely chap called Lars Eyer. And he wrote a very funny book called Wittgenstein Jr., which is all about uh, the contemporary university. So in many ways, the most similar to Nakedai, although they're very different books. So there was that. And then the second segment was, of course, uh, Wittgenstein's life and work on his own terms, uh, because in order to fictionalize someone, you have to know them backwards in order to then start making stuff up. (laughs) So I obviously began with his own writing, uh, the Philosophical Investigations and the Tractatus, notably, um, as well as his other writing. And in many ways, it's, it's quite easy. I mean, you can take two views. The two major works are the ones that he finished. But then there's all this other stuff, which is collected manuscripts. Uh, etc., much of which went into that second book, The Philosophical Investigations. So, um, yeah, I, I had my work cut out. And then, of course, there were the biographies. And very lucky here. Uh, Ray Monk's book, uh, The du- Duty of Genius, is excellent, very informative, and very easy to read. Um, there was another book called Young Ludwig by, I believe his name is Bruce McGuinness. Um, that was, that was the vol- volume one of, of his Wittgenstein biography, which he unfortunately never finished. And along with many other books. So it was, there was a lot of stuff to get through. And if there is one bit of research, which was really interesting and in which I not necessarily, you know, uh, uh, wanted to put into Nakedai because it would have been too crammed or it was, wasn't relevant. It was Wittgenstein's time as a soldier in World War One. Now there is a piece of Nak, a part of Nakedai in which there is a war and Nakedai is a soldier, but it's tiny compared to the the novel I think that you would need to really investigate uh, uh, what happens to Wittgenstein during World War I. Now, Wittgenstein, um, he comes from one of the richest families in Europe. His father is a self-made man, uh, but he's also a steel magnet, and they're a very, very powerful family, and this is the environment that Wittgenstein comes out of. Um, he's a patriot. He goes to fight for the German army with the Tractatus draft in his rucksack. And he's going through the whole war with his this this incredible piece of philosophy the whole time in his backpack and and it, to the extent that he's he's captured unfortunately and he and he gets sent to uh, he ends up in an Italian POW camp and he mails the manuscript to Bertrand Russell and throughout this time he's working on the book uh, whilst shells are flying over his head it's it's really surreal this whole experience and there's also uh, more interesting personal things about. Uh, his diary, which uh, often consisted of his masturbation schedule. You know, this is a man uh, under a lot of pressure and it's, and it's, but it, it goes a long way. It is, it is, it is funny, but it also goes a long way to showing what a complex guy he was, you know, and what's going on inside. But you could get a whole novel out of that. You, and I think you could get a very good piece of Wittgenstein fiction out of, uh, out of uh, Ludwig's time on the front line, so to speak. Then maybe that's book two, book three. <laughs> Nakedai two, the return of the killer Nakedai. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Could we have our final reading, please? 
Absolutely. I'm going to pick a random page towards the end. I was bloody-minded and sought out a PhD tutor. After researching various individuals, I settled on Hiroshi Nakada at the University of Twickley. I had heard a few stories about the man. I was fascinated by him and sent off the obligatory awkward email. He doesn't take many on, you know, Foster warned me. I doubt very much that it'll take you on, and that doesn't reflect on your talents. Rather, it reflects on the fact that he's a difficult man. Yes, he's very annoying and elusive man. I later learned that she had been trying for years to organize a visiting lecture from Nakadai, and that Nakadai had never had the good fortune to retrieve her emails from his junk mail folder. Thankfully, after about a week of waiting, he replied to me and agreed to supervise my PhD in theoretical and applied linguistics. I was Elizabeth McConchy, and he, in the guise of Vaughn Williams, had decided to educate me in the sonic method of music. He added that he was extremely busy, notwithstanding, and expected me to do the heavy lifting myself. The prospect of working with the Hiroshi Nakadai suddenly seemed so real and exciting, however, and I agreed to his terms. I subsequently moved to Twickley with a mind to starting my doctorate in September. It is very easy to think that your work is less important than your tutors when your scholastic efforts are pitted against theirs. What I found encouraging about Nakadai was his own belief that he was still a student, and therefore would demand as much limited respect as I gave him. Thus, I will not describe my PhD thesis in detail, but instead include one of my fictionalizations. What follows, dear reader, is something that happened early on in my relationship with Nakadai. It demonstrated that trouble seemed to follow Nakadai wherever he went, and I hope that you will forgive the occasional fabricated tableau contained within this short story. Quote, a rainy day on campus, a ding of an email, then this. What is this private hell I'm in? I met you a long time, Nakadai, but I remember you. We've got an understanding of madness, the two of us. But if you couple the insides, the stinking thinking, there's four of us. There's a climber. There's a climber, and he's climbing, and he falls. He doesn't fall to his death, if you get what I'm saying. What I mean, what I mean is he's falling and falling. For so long, he doesn't know which way is up. He may be falling up. You're reading this. I can tell you understand. I can feel it ripping through. My problem is, I don't know which direction my madness is going. There's an old word. Madness. Mania. Hysteria. Frenzy. I'm here and there. I say to myself, God help me. But God only helps me when I'm angry. Do you understand? I know you understand. I've established that. But if God only helps me when I'm angry, doesn't that set me up for failure? A truly Christian failure. I mean, I can't be angry all the time, Nakadai. That takes effort. And making an effort to believe in God is something I don't want to believe in. So I have to focus on the negative. There's no negative in you. That's why I'd probably die around you. I couldn't bear to be around you. I can barely stand writing this letter. But the more I'm bound to others, jealousy, resentment, fear, the more I'm certain God doesn't exist. Except he must, or she must, they. Never makes much sense saying they. I digress, but you understand. I've established that already. Now, the good news. There are times when I distance myself from evil and the happiness makes God disappear. There's certainly no God when I'm happy. I'd like to die when I'm happy. I know you understand. And to find out what happens, you're going to have to read the rest of it. That's a great <laughs> segue into where can we buy Nakada? Sure. Well, it's available on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle or, or you can get a paper copy. Um, and if you don't like Amazon, you can always get it from Abe Books. And Abe Books, let me do a little ad for Abe Books. Abe Books is a wonderful website which connects you with thousands of independent used bookshops around the country. 
do use it. It's a wonderful uh, teaching resource. And you can also find Nakadai on it, which makes it extra special. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. Walker, thank you so much for being my guest, for reading to us, answering our questions. And I'm sure Abe Books also appreciates you (laughs) talking about them too. I expect a check in the mail. (laughs) Yes, and it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and I wish you all the best. Oh, thank you.